Hello and welcome to the final Nudia on Your Mind podcast for 2020 with me, Johan Tuchmeer, and with Victor Sonnebeck. Great to have this conversation with you, Victor. Yeah, great to be back with a final edition of this podcast for the year. After after a very eventful year, right? Who would have thought that 2020 would turn out the way it has? Uh, It's almost like you have to catch your breath now that you sit here and hold our fresh Nudia on your mind report in your hand and look back on what's happened during 2020. I think in one way uh, you could describe it as a year that has uh, in some ways passed rather quickly. Uh, But as you say, when when we're sitting here looking back at it, there is obviously a lot of things that has happened, uh, not only for us in our team with uh, what we've been uh, writing about, um, but in society as a whole. And uh, a lot of interesting stuff to get into. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, do you remember, in the beginning of the year, we obviously had a pretty ambitious plan for what topics should we bring up and write about in our Nodia on Your Mind reports this year. And then when this coronavirus uh, issue popped up in China, we originally thought that it would be an, an Asian problem, a localized or at least a regional problem. Um, and, and, and the agenda was changed pretty quickly in in the sort of topics we needed to bring up in our reports and also i guess the pace at which we uh, brought up new varieties of that topic to uh, to cover as as the whole uh, situation evolved and turned into a, a global pandemic i think you could describe it as from uh, from the starting point simply just turning our uh, near-term planning upside down uh, it soon turned out to to uh, turn the, the long-term planning uh, upside down as well uh, not only with uh, the, the topics that perhaps were the most relevant, uh, the most direct effects with uh, uh, lockdowns, for example, around the world and the effects that that has on companies, uh, but also, as, uh, as I think we will get, in more, uh, get more into here, um, the, the after effects, if you could call it that, uh, the, the things that might have changed in a way that could be more or less uh, permanent exactly and that, that, that's arguably the most fascinating part of all this which uh, which we'll get into soon but just to do a quick recap because that's part of the point of this conversation to to reflect a bit on what the year has been like and the topics that we have covered and, and how we've done that since it all started as as as, as an issue a health problem in china we 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 changed the agenda for what topics to bring up. We decided to dive straight into this coronavirus situation. And, and, and the first Nudi on Mind topic we brought out, uh, which was about it, uh, was looking at it from, from a supply chain's point of view. So, so seeing that the Chinese were pretty quick and pretty drastic in uh, enforcing lockdown-type measures to uh, contain the spread of the virus, we, we approached it originally from the point of view of, of, of supply chains. Will there be a lack of materials, product goods, uh, and, and is that going to have uh, effects on, on, on the economy, on the corporate sector uh, in, in Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, so that's where it all began, which was very, very interesting. A lot of hard work at the time, I think, but uh, we concluded that we thought that the situation was was pretty serious. But that was only the beginning. Uh, so when we thought that was serious, uh, we had to take the next step and, and get deeper into it. Uh, more, more on the financial vigilance theme, um, and, and that was really not new, right? Because we, we, had, we had looked into that as a theme without knowing anything about the future pandemic already the year before, in 2019, when we started off with the financial life, life jacket uh, report. Um, so, so we had a good starting point, right, to, to elaborate and delve more deeply into it now that financial vigilance seemed even more urgent 
than it did when we looked at it the year before. And I, I think that's an interesting aspect that uh, given this crisis, we've noticed that, uh, as you mentioned, some of the topics that we've written about before that have been relevant for quite some time, for example, the, the financial life jacket report about how companies are, are funding themselves, uh, what we noticed was that some of these started or, or these topics started popping up again, right? So, so they started becoming more and more um, interesting and perhaps more and more uh, relevant. So, so if you take the financial life jacket from, from uh, 2019, uh, in that report, we, we highlighted the shift that has occurred uh, when it comes to how Nordic corporates are funding themselves. Um, with the main point being that, that corporates are much more reliant on, on bond markets, for example, or, or debt capital markets uh, than they have been uh, in the past. And uh, as I think everyone can imagine, this uh, this became a, a super uh, relevant topic once again, uh, given the fact that the, the initial um, shock of the corona pandemic uh, proved to, to be uh, pretty hard hitting on the capital markets. So for some time, um, with companies scrambling to, to uh, create and scrambling to, to uh, start their crisis planning uh, in terms of funding, for example, um, it wasn't as easy as it had been before to find funding, uh, either to find new funding in capital markets or to, to renew and, and, and keep up their already existing funding. We, we had a great opportunity in a way that we wanted to explore that a bit further with something we had wanted to take a look at for some time. So, so writing about the renewed urgency to, to look at refinancing risks and availability of capital market funding made perfect sense. Um, and that was, that was really appreciated, I think, as well at the time, since we had this new occasion when capital markets dried up, where we had had a number of years where everybody had grown used to uh, a constantly pretty much buoyant capital market available right there to tap. Uh, but, but we also followed up uh, regarding credit ratings as a phenomenon, uh, where there have been a lot of opinions over the years in what is good, what is bad about the credit rating, how does it work, and what do you actually get out of it as, as a corporate borrower. Uh, and we, I think we did a, a pretty original approach there in trying to put some numbers on it. Uh, it. It's one thing that a more difficult capital market environment means that the benefit of having a rating could arguably be a lot greater, because in those kinds of market conditions, it makes even more of a difference to have to have that quality stamp, to have that availability. But the key part of our look at credit ratings as such, right in the midst of the COVID-19 situation, was also to try and be a bit more specific in, can we actually say how much it's worth to have a credit rating? Exactly. And uh, yeah, as you're saying, uh, what we've seen historically is that uh, the, the more turbulent the market is, the, the more you, you get out of having a credit rating. And, and in, in historical cases, and I think we can safely say in this case as well, uh, it might even be a question of, uh, of being able to access funding uh, whatsoever. So not only a question about price, um, but one aspect that we, we did look into was this specific question about, uh, about price. So can you safely say that uh, a company benefits in, in a financial way? Uh, so not only having access to the markets or access to other markets or more funding or longer fun funding, which you get if you have a credit rating, uh, but also price-wise, can we say that they actually benefit financially from it? And, and the answer is simply yes. Uh, so what we did was uh, quite the extensive quantitative work in looking at 
uh, a large, a very large sample of European uh, corporate bonds uh, over, a, a, I think, a 20-year period, and identifying the bonds uh, for corporates that later became rated, and then seeing if the the rating event, when the rating uh, became public, if that had an effect on on bond spreads. And I don't remember the exact figures, but I think on average uh, we we concluded that. Uh, becoming rated typically lowered uh, the spread with about 20 basis points. So, so, so quite a strong case for, for, uh, for a credit rating uh, benefiting a company financially as well. And nice to be able to put a number on it to be specific about what the value could be based on, on data. We like to work that way, um, which, which I think is sometimes quite refreshing in these areas where there are a lot of opinions, but maybe not necessarily always the same quantification of or evidence-based backing of why the opinion is the one you you have but looking at the sort of quick and sharp shifts between different angles and different topics we we finished the first half season this year with a report on the oil industry and and i guess it's it's fair to ask okay how do you go from financial vigilance uh, to 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 the oil industry and and then we get into as at least a, a first touch upon uh, what you mentioned about lasting, likely permanent structural change uh, be, being being propelled by, by the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and, and we had wanted to have a look at the oil industry for some time, and now it kind of became a perfect opportunity to have that look since the oil industry was arguably the worst hit industry worldwide uh, at the height of the first wave of the, of the pandemic uh, when it struck. So we, 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 we took a look at it in this context and, and were able to actually present some, some pretty drastic findings when we, uh, when we looked at what we expected the industry to see uh, in, in the years ahead. And I'm talking peak oil, of course. And uh, what is interesting to note there is, is, of course, the shift as well in what peak oil actually means. Because I mean, going back just a few years, peak oil typically meant, will we run out of oil, right? Mm. Um, but now it's more of a question of will will there be uh, enough demand? Will we see demand um, reaching a peak after which oil oil will will see less demand year over year and start to uh, start to decline? Uh, and I guess one way of categorizing this topic would be that uh, I think this this is one of the prime topics of uh, structural change that has happened for for quite some time with, for example, uh, renewable energy growing rapidly, kind of pushing out uh, the use of oil in, in some ways. Uh, but given the corona, corona crisis and the events uh, that has happened and, and the change ultimately in, in uh, consumer behavior, uh, this might be one of these areas where, um, where coronavi- the coronavirus or the corona pandemic has acted as a catalyst uh, for, for kind of um, speeding up this change. Uh, and, and I guess it's kind of natural when you think about it, why the oil industry was hit so hard as, as the pandemic took shape in, in that when there were these social distancing measures introduced, keeping consumers, keeping citizens pretty immobile, uh, stuck at home or, or at least being highly restricted in, in, in how far we could go anywhere for a period of time. Then, as we stop moving around, and as also trade ground to a halt temporarily, as, as production ground to a halt, um, there, there isn't as much fuel needed uh, when there is less movement. So, so that I think anyone can grasp. But then the question is, of course, okay, so, so what will happen going forward? 
and and how big an impact will that have on uh, demand for for fossil fuels and, and and of course specifically for for oil where there had already been some behavioral trends but particularly a sustainability trend uh, making it more sensitive with emissions and 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 lots of regulatory pressure um, for 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 more sustainable transport solutions uh, more sustainable energy solutions but overall we again wanted to be specific, right? And, and and try and put numbers on where do we think this will lead for the oil industry? Exactly. Yeah, so so looking at the trends, uh, uh, most notably in, in uh, renewable energy, uh, and of course the, the driving forces in, in for example, uh, electrical vehicles becoming a, a larger part of, of uh, the new vehicle sales, um, our analysis concluded that with, uh, uh, with, probably a high degree of, of probability uh, you would reach this peak oil, so peak demand in oil, um, in 2026 or around those years. And we would also include in that statement that uh, there has been been a number of, of uh, newspaper articles, um, some of them from, from international energy agencies, uh, but also with uh, statements from from uh, large oil producing companies, uh, f- from their CEOs, for example, saying that we might actually have already reached peak oil mm. uh, s- from this downturn in the coronavirus. So, so there is a possibility that we already have this uh, this point in time, so to speak, uh, behind us. So, what seemed pretty crazy if you had said it a few years ago suddenly was actually quite plausible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I guess we will get into to, uh, uh, the effects that might be uh, be causing this this peak oil in the near term um, in in discussing uh, what are the long term ramifications of the uh, the COVID crisis and how will that affect us as uh, as consumers. Uh, but I think bef- before we get to that point, if we just take a step back and look at the the overall economic uh, effects uh, that we've seen from the from the COVID crisis and. And perhaps more specifically from the lockdowns uh, introduced in order to, to combat the spread of the virus. Um, but also, what is the outlook for, for 2021? Uh, mm. what, what do analysts think about um, how, how the corporate sector will, uh, will perform? Mm. Well, after the summer period, we were a little bit worried that coming back to COVID-19 again could bring the risk of us seeming repetitive and, and maybe unimaginative. But but I think we agreed pretty quickly that that was a risk worth taking because we definitely, uh, in, in, in how we follow the news flow and, and, and expected the developments in, in the following months, were completely convinced at that time uh, that, that the headlines would again become dominated by, by, by the pandemic. Uh, so we... we we started off the second half year season after the summer period by, in another Nodioni Mind report, uh, looking back at what we could learn from the developments in the first half year to see, okay, how actually did the lockdowns and, and, and other related measures hit the world economy and the companies? And, and we wanted to raise the view ahead a bit and also uh, try and, and, and have a view on, okay, so what can we reasonably expect next going forward? And, and if we start with how how big the hit was, uh, how serious this became, uh, the sad news was that that the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, was 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 the biggest shock to the world economy that we have seen since the Great Depression of nineteen twenty nine. And to compare with something a little more recent than that, if if we if we look back to the global financial crisis of two thousand eight and two thousand nine, 
unfortunately in the second quarter when when in certainly north america and 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 europe the biggest hit to the economy came from from lockdowns and other measures the drops in gdp were about twice as bad as the ones we saw in in the first quarter of the global financial crisis so so an unprecedented hit to economic activity but the story was a little bit different in a way at least on a net basis when we look at the effects on, on, on the corporate sector. And, and there again, we, we wanted to be a bit ambitious and try and be able to put numbers on it um, to, to, to have a, a well-based view and be able to draw strong conclusions about, okay, so what happened to the companies? Exactly, and that was one of the thing, things, I guess, that, that uh, surprised us, is that if you looked to, to history, um, for example, the, the financial crisis, uh, when you had this massive drawdown in in corporate revenues, uh, you also saw a sharp decline in in uh, EBTA for corporates. So they were not only um, losing out on revenue, but they were losing money as well. Um, but when we looked at uh, at the what happened for corporates during the the first quarters in the in the COVID crisis, uh, there there was this different dynamic in that revenues typically declined more than the bottom line. So, so corporates managed to save their bottom line, uh, in a way you could describe it. Uh, and perhaps most notably is that when you looked at the, the development for, uh, for the third quarter, um, revenue wasn't back to where it was before the crisis, but um, a lot of corporates actually had a higher uh, bottom line than they did pre-crisis. And how was this possible? Yeah, and we've been discussing uh, discussing a lot about uh, the the help from government, for example, um, with regards to uh, perhaps generally in, in Europe, but perhaps most uh, or more specifically uh, in the Nordics uh, in terms of, of uh, delaying tax payments or um, uh, making temporary layoffs uh, available so that you could mm. Uh, reduce your your uh, number of staff um, and, and and not lose out as much uh, in those costs. Uh, but from our discussions with the corporates as well, what we've noticed is that uh, a lot of corporates were quite early, uh, given how sudden this shock was and how 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 suddenly it hit us. A lot of corporates were quite early in in actually implementing cost saving measures, so that even though they didn't have that many weeks or months uh, to prepare. Uh, they were actually able to to be quite efficient uh, when it actually hit. Yeah. Apart from that pretty unusual pattern of how well the corporates were able to protect their profits when during a very limited time period their revenues completely collapsed. Uh, another thing that really stands out for uh, the COVID-19 shock is, is, is the nature of it in how differently it affected different industries and different sectors, different types of companies and businesses. And, and, and not too difficult to understand why this is the case in that when the virus spread needs to be contained and the social distancing policies and measures are introduced, what it means is that we as consumers get less mobile. So, so all industries, all types of business activity, which requires us to be mobile, were devastated. So, so travel, hospitality, food services, entertainment, huge problems because demand simply wasn't there any longer. And, and, and 
Comparing with the global financial crisis, this is a huge contrast in that some sectors have been completely pulverized in, in, in business activity by the impact from, from COVID-19 and, and, and the social distancing measures introduced to try and bring it under control, whereas other industries have actually benefited and, 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 and even done even better than before from these circumstances brought by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we looked at this, right, to see uh, how different types of companies performed with some pretty striking examples. And I'm thinking, of course, of big tech companies. So, so what, one of the things we looked at is um, how, uh, how Fangta, for example, so Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, uh, tell me if I'm missing someone here, uh, Google, Tencent and Alibaba, uh, right? So, so these tech giants, exactly, so these global tech giants, uh, the ones with a very very digital business model, um, the pattern that you see for these type of companies is that uh, the COVID crisis has actually been somewhat of an opportunity uh, for them in that these already existing trends in higher, uh, higher degree of digitalization, people spending more money online versus offline, all of these trends were, were enforced. So, so you had a, uh, a growth trend that accelerated rapidly. Um, since people were more or less forced uh, to, to do so. Um, mm. Forced into not meeting physically as much as before. So having meetings instead via, uh, via digital channel, uh, channels, um, but also when it comes to, to consumption. Uh, you weren't as able to, to simply go down to the store and pick something up. Uh, but instead, uh, you, you either had to or you strongly preferred to uh, order it uh, online instead. This, I think, very naturally brings us into the what, what I guess you or I could describe as the juicy part of uh, the themes we have explored in, in Odiani Mind this year, which is, as you mentioned in, in, in the beginning, what permanent changes, what lasting changes to consumer behavior could we see uh, from, from the situation uh, created by the, the pandemic? Uh, and and we we've explored some of this, and I think it's 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 interesting to bring it up because it's it's also something that we can all relate to as as individuals because we I think everyone has 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 experienced some sort of effect on our everyday lives at work or privately or both from the pandemic, um, and 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 it's not that difficult to think of examples of where we could see a, a very different pattern of consumption uh, looking ahead, even at the point when the pandemic is behind us and when those restrictions related to containing it are, are no longer there. Um, just to, I, mean, I, think, I think a fun way of addressing it, Victor, would be if, if, we, if we take a few concrete examples and, 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 and just use them to illustrate what, what this could mean. Because nobody knows for sure, but we certainly have our views. And I'm just thinking, if, if we start with you, I, I, I know you're not the one to say no to a good football game. And if I just open that up by asking you the question, how many football games have you attended during 2020? Yeah, exactly. Zero. Unfortunately, that's a depressing answer. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, uh, and 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 I guess uh, before we really get into to the the future effects of the pandemic, uh, we should be really clear that our our kind of starting point for this discussion, or the, the premise of of the question, is that once everything goes back to normal, kind of in a technical way, once Corona is no longer affecting us, once you you don't have any type of lockdowns. So when we reach that point where everything uh, is back to normal 
technically. The question is, will we have lasting uh, lasting a uh, lasting impact on our own behavior right mm. uh, and i think uh, for sure when it comes to watching sports uh, that has been obviously for a lot of people moved towards uh, a more streaming based uh, type of uh, of experience um, but i think that uh, also within that space uh, in terms of not being able to do uh, things uh, physically that you wanted to do before um, we mentioned shopping, for example, and I think that a lot of people, um, perhaps people that didn't uh, shop online before, they have realized that, well, this actually works quite well. Uh, and there is a, uh, there's a, a nice thing to it in that you, you, you order things and they get delivered to your door, for example. Um, but then you have the question, will, will everything go back to normal? So will people kind of abandon this uh, once the pandemic is, is over? Uh, and I think uh, our view would be that to some degree, sure, people will revert back to their old behavior. Uh, but to another, de- another uh, degree, a lot of people have probably uh, um, found new ways uh, that they're comfortable with. So, for example, shopping online. Uh, they've, uh, they've realized uh, that this is something that, uh, that actually benefits them. And I think that can be applied to other behavior as well. If we talk about travel... Um, if we talk about business travel specifically, corporates have clearly survived without doing the level of business travel that they did prior to the pandemic. So the question then becomes, is that going to get resumed and revert back to where it came from? Difficult for us to imagine that this would be the case, given the cost savings which have been realized from, from ceasing business travel to such a great extent. Will some of it come back? For sure, without a doubt. Will it be as much as it was before? Probably not, given that we have now experienced that we can achieve a lot of what we want to achieve by by communicating at a distance, doing video conferencing or whatever solution we opt for. Private travel. Will we travel as much as we did prior to the pandemic for our holidays? Will we go to the same destinations? Or is there going to be a different mix of, say, holiday or travel choices than we had before? Very likely, we think, that we are going to see some different choices as well, even when theoretically the, the choices we had prior to the pandemic would become available again. And I, and I think on the, on the topic of travel, uh, if you just look to the kind of smaller version of traveling, so, so commuting back and uh, commuting to work and, and back, will people be commuting as much as before? Or will we keep working at least to some extent uh, from home since we've realized, at least for a lot of us, that, that it actually works quite well? And from that point of view or, or that factor, you might also ask, will there be as much of a need for office space, for example? Will, uh, will Nordea, for example, need uh, as much office space as we currently do uh, in the city center of Stockholm? Or, or is there a more efficient way um, of, of handling this with people having, uh, having schedules, for example, for when to work in the office or, or when to work home? Uh, and I guess this is uh, this is driven, or might be driven, both from the uh, the company's point of view. Uh, are we as willing in the future to uh, to allocate as much capital and uh, as much uh, of a cost uh, to to our office space, uh, but also the kind of demand from uh, from the uh, employees? Um, will people want to work more from home um, than than they've done before? And my, my gut reaction is that, that they will. Lots of big changes and uh, 
fascinating stuff. And I think that a, a good way of rounding all this off would be to, on the topic of dramatic change, maybe just also uh, mention in a more big sense, uh, or at least big picture sense, the fourth potential industrial revolution, since we also wrote about Industry 4.0, which is not brought upon us by the pandemic, but where it fits extremely well um, in, in the context of big structural change and where communications or connectivity, in other words, the internet is, is, is a huge driving force. Great topic to get into, and, and I think very educational for both of us to get acquainted with it but a fascinating one in, in, in looking at, which was, I think, new to both of us when we took on the topic of Industry 4.0, that there is such an urgent need to find a new source of productivity growth in the advanced economies, specifically in, 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 in the G7. And, and uh, it, the, the, a great way of trying to describe it being to zoom in a bit on evolution for business models likely being the biggest component in the fourth industrial revolution and, 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 and that being probably the biggest source of upside for productivity in conducting your business in, in a different way. Uh, and I'm talking, of course, of usage-based instead of ownership-based business models. Which we've uh, also talked a bit about before in uh, one of the previous uh, reports about uh, uh, millennials, if you remember, from 2019. Ah, the favorites. Exactly, yeah. Managing Millennials was the title of that one. Uh, but one of the aspects that we discussed was this uh, uh, already existing uh, difference, uh, you could call it, in con consumer behavior. In that uh, my generation typically favors the, uh, the kind of uh, pay-as-you-go model or, or rent or yeah, usage-based business model rather than, for, for example, owning uh, a car, if I want to use, uh, use a car. Uh, and in this Industry 4.0 uh, report, uh, we can just men mention briefly that one of the things we looked at was specifically uh, car uh, usership, but, but specifically car ownership. The fact that it carries with it a lot of costs uh, that are probably higher than many people might think. And in that area or in that industry, that there is a lot of potential for uh, you could call it a uh, more efficient uh, resource usage. Uh, instead of uh, owning a car and, and, and seeing that it stands still for about 95% of its lifetime, um, you could instead subscribe to some kind of, of uh, usage-based model where you pick up a car when you need it. Uh, and this is an interesting topic as well, given the fact that you have this difference between, uh, between uh, generations, um, where some prefer, prefer it one way and some prefer it the other way. Uh, and this is no doubt going to, to continue. Uh, but it's also an area where probably in a lot of ways uh, you've seen a more kind of structural change given the, the COVID crisis uh, and, the, and the, uh, the effect it ha ha has had on consumer behavior. And of course, the generational shift. As the younger generation rep comes to represent a, a greater share of purchasing power, their preferences will be more clearly seen in, in, in what kind of model for car usage should be made available. Um, and, and, and with about 13 million uh, registered actively used cars in the four Nordic countries, it's easy to imagine that the amount of upside, if you get that utilization rate up from maybe 5%, is, is potentially massive. And as a fun anecdote, Victor, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but I'll take this opportunity to ask you, in the presentation that we have used when we talk to our clients about Industry 4.0, 
did you notice in, in the slides where we described the concept of car sharing that when comparing car ownership with, with car sharing, uh, it's actually my car that is the image of ownership. <laughs> I, was str I was struggling to find an image on the internet that would be good showing a car in a driveway. Uh, surprisingly difficult. Uh, and also we have this, of course, copyright issue that we can't use just any image. So I decided that the, the quick and easy solution is actually to just take a picture of my own car and put it in there. I think I might have missed that, but now that you mention it, it, it makes sense. And yeah. I, I recognize it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as good an example as any uh, of uh, the dinosaur approach of owning your car, of course. This has been really fun. It's been a great conversation. And I think a good way, I think, of, of, of uh, closing the book on 2020 is just to maybe finish off with a little flagging of what's coming up next year. We have a lot of exciting things planned. I think we should be humble and realize that there is a great level of uncertainty, not least regarding the development of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I guess we shouldn't take for granted that there could be changes to the planning of the topics that we want to write about in reports next year. But at least if we stick to the more near term, the next Nodia on Your Mind report, which we are currently planning to release in early February 2021, uh, what's that going to be about? Because that's also tied pretty closely to the uh, developments and trends that we have seen during this year. Tell us. It's about a topic that we've uh, written about, uh, I think, two times before, uh, which is uh, e-commerce. So the last time we wrote about it was in, uh, I think, before summer uh, 2019. Um, where we looked at the development of e-commerce uh, broadly in the in the four Nordic uh, countries, uh, but also looked specifically at uh, food retail, uh, and in that report uh, argued that that uh, e-commerce as a whole, but perhaps specifically uh, food retail, uh, was due for a, a massive boom uh, in the Nordics. Um, so, so for our uh, our first uh, Nordic on your mind in in twenty twenty one, we will look at this topic again, and look at it from the perspective of of uh, COVID nineteen and the pandemic acting as uh, as a catalyst for kind of speeding up this the, this shift. Uh, and one of the the things that we are extremely excited about uh, when it comes to this report uh, is that uh, we have access to uh, proprietary data. Uh, if you want to explain a bit uh, what it is. Yeah, this is really cool. Uh, uh, we, since we are the, the biggest bank in, in the Nordic region, we, we have a, a unique data set available to look at to try and gauge what's happening in, in e-commerce. Um, and and uh, we are about 27 million people in, in the four Nordic countries and 10 million out of those 27 are, are Nordia clients. So what we have is the card transaction data of the uh, retail clients of Nordia. Uh, across the region. We obviously cannot see what any individual clients are buying or from whom or when. Uh, we can only see aggregated and anonymized data, but that is a really fascinating data set where we can categorize it and, and then see some pretty clear trends on how consumers in the Nordic region are uh, spending. Uh, and, and this is what we will use, unlike in the past true reports that we've written about e-commerce, to try and show uh, what is happening to online retail and, and, and how that compares with what's happening to uh, physical store-based retail. So, so I'm really looking forward to exploring that data and seeing particularly what change has been brought by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and I think we can go as far, Victor, as to say that 
it, it's it's a pretty striking trend that we can see so far. I guess we could add as well that that from the basis of of uh, this data uh, and other data as uh, as usual, um, it's of course interesting to ask what are the implications. So, for example, with regards to uh, to logistics, I can imagine that a lot of uh, logistics companies are are quite busy right now with uh, the Christmas shop. So, dear listeners, not to be missed, a new look at e-commerce coming up in, in early February. We're very much looking forward to reconnecting with you then. But in the meantime, I think the time has come for us to thank you all for your um, engagement with uh, our thematic uh, uh, topics and research and, and your engagement with us during the year. Uh, it, it's been an interesting year, to say the least. We very much appreciate all the great dialogues that we've had. And you are more than welcome to uh, engage again uh, in in the new year. Uh, Wish you all a Merry Christmas and a fantastic 2021. Thank you.